Hello and welcome to a new podcast series by Rising Arts Agency and King's College London, exploring the ways power imbalances show up in cultural and creative partnerships. If you'd find it helpful to interact with the text version of this conversation, you can find a link to a transcript for this episode in the show notes. We hope you're joining us with openness and curiosity. So if you're up for learning about how to shake things up for the better in the creative industry, then you're in the right place. Through our conversations and guest appearances, we hope to make power visible in these spaces and together dream up strategies for creating a truly radical and equitable cultural sector. In this first episode, we will be hearing a conversation between the masterminds behind this project, Andriana Drencheva, who's a senior lecturer and researcher at KCL, and Rising Arts Agency's co-directors, Jess Bunyan and Uella Jackson. In this episode, they explore what we mean by power, how it shows up in cultural institutions, and their motivations for conducting this research. There's plenty of juicy approaches and ideas along the way, so take a deep breath and let's dive in. I'm Andriana Drencheva, most people call me Adi, and I work as a senior lecturer in entrepreneurship at King's College London. Admittedly, most of my work is with social enterprises, so not necessarily traditional commercial profit-maximizing types of organizations. And I look into how they manage the tensions and contradictions that they engage in as they try to catalyze positive social change. And I guess the hat that I wear in this conversation is as an academic who does research with um, organizations that strive to make the world better, but also as an audience member who has always been interested in um, the cultural and creative industries and benefited massively from being a member of the audience. So I am Jess Bunyan. I'm one of the co-directors of Rising Arts Agency. We are a social enterprise, we're an agency, we work with young people aged 18 to 30 in Bristol um, and support them to access creative careers in the cultural sector. Um, they are mostly underrepresented young people as well, so whether they're people of colour or disabled, neurodivergent um, or have otherwise um, faced barriers to entering the creative sector. So I guess what's brought me here today is that I am, was one of those young people. Um, Rising Arts Agency was one of the first places that really recognised some of my like applied skills, if you like, and made me feel like they had value and could add something to the cultural sector, even though I didn't come through a kind of traditional, like, went to uni for arts and came out and then became an artist or whatever. Not that many people have that very straight line journey. Um, but yeah, so I think I was one of those young people and uh, Rising has been a space where I've really been able to develop my skills to support other young people to do similar things. Um, and I'm really excited by uh, what different kinds of people can bring to this sector, to this conversation um, and uh, supporting them to do that. Thanks. Um, yeah, my name's Yuella Jackson and I'm one of the other co-directors at Rising Arts Agency. And, you know, one of the things that's really, um, what I really love about Rising is the fact that, you know, in order to support young people who are underrepresented in the creative sector to access 
um, you know, whether it's cultural, creative um, offers or jobs or opportunities, we have to change and challenge the sector. So we do a lot of work around kind of advocating for new ways of working, new ways of thinking, you know, ways of being more inclusive and accessible, but also kind of ways that benefit us all in wider society. So, you know, one of the reasons why I'm in this conversation or excited by this conversation is um, being able to really push these ideas forward and take time to really reflect on on kind of some of the practices that have become embedded within the culture and creative sector that we that might be harmful, might be unhealthy, um, and also kind of push that that conversation forward. So, um, you know, as someone who, you know, didn't really engage with the culture sector or creative sector, still kind of learning about it in 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 my role at Rising, you know, this is is really quite exciting. I guess one of the things that maybe we're taking for granted is we've used this term, the cultural sector or the creative sector, and maybe we don't necessarily appreciate uh, the diversity, but also that some of the people listening to this podcast might not necessarily know what we mean. So maybe we start with the very basics of this conversation and grounding ourselves from your perspective as the co-directors of Rising what does it mean to be a member of the cultural and creative industries? How do you define the sector in which you see yourselves? That's such an interesting question, because I think the moment you asked that, there was just so many, I realised the amount of assumptions that I've made around what the creative and cultural sector is. Um, but, you know, I kind of struggle to know or to kind of identify as being part of the cultural creative sector like as rising we kind of exist in this kind of middle space between what we see as the cultural creative sector and communities of of young people so I guess the way I see the creative sector is the kind of traditional established creative organizations um, and institutions within that kind of um, define rightly or wrongly you know, the cultural and creative agenda in the city and beyond and in, you know, in in the UK. But that probably doesn't mean a lot to people. But, you know, I think of like the theatres, you know, the the art galleries, the, the kind of spaces in which we, we collectively think of um, creativity and cultural activity happening. That doesn't necessarily mean that that is what it is or that's what it should be. But I think that's kind of the baseline for me is like, the venues, the the professionals, you know, the people that are, you know, paid and um, are upholding our ideas of what is and what isn't culture and arts. I think what you Ella said about that kind of, uh, there's almost like an institutional Mm. aspect to who is part of the cultural sector. I think they're definitely like organizations and people on the edge of that and I think uh, part of me was thinking like you know whether the young people in Rising's community of young creatives feel like they're part of it or not I think often it's like do you have x organization that you can put on your CV or you've worked with or sometimes that's the kind of like badge of honor I guess it's like that oh I've worked with this person and even if my experience wasn't great it's kind of a like a tick in my skill set but yeah I think ultimately they're the people that like set the agenda of culture they're the people that get to like make stuff do stuff often it's related to buildings 
I think there's also this kind of um, tension between the sort of creative outputs and the like engagement or learning program it's often called within these institutions where um, that almost feels like secondary to you know what's the big like flagship show or the creative director's passion project or whatever you know <laughs> like I think all of those dynamics are also in there for when we think and talk about the cultural sector as an entity. And I guess from my perspective, this is why we are in this conversation. It's Mm. who gets to define what the cultural sector is, who gets to define who is part of the sector. So how do we make sense of this um, power that certain organizations or certain individuals have to make decisions and implicitly or explicitly define what the cultural sector is and who gets to participate either as a producer or as an audience member? It's it's kind of made me think a lot about the, um, just like the different, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, Andriana, about like definitions and who gets to define. And, you know, in my eyes, there are lots of kind of, you know, there are people that I think have a lot of like cultural value, um, but you know, in terms of like mainstream established um, spaces, they don't. And so there's this kind of like really interesting thing that happens sometimes of like, you know, organisations or the institutions kind of using, you know, people who's on the periphery, their their kind of social capital, their social value to kind of make them look better. But kind of thinking about what that trade-off is, like whether that tick on your CV is enough to be like, I've worked with this person um, or this organisation, you know, am I am I part of the crew now? Do I want to be part of the crew now? You know, and for the institution, it's like, look, we're so progressive, we're so whatever, we're working with these people. Um, and, it, and it's always that kind of, it, I don't know, it's always that really kind of uncomfortable space of kind of thinking about, has this felt like an equal and mutually beneficial relationship or has somebody been exploited or has somebody um you know not got out of it what what they might have thought or what might have needed um so yeah and how deep is that invite right like you can invite people in but like how how much <laughs> like if it's just a surface level we find that quite often as people want to engage on a very like surface public facing level but that deeper work of who is at your tables of power who is making the decisions about the strategic direction of your organization those ones are like harder to get invited to Mm. a lot of it is like social currency it's Mm. like oh if you're at a level where you can have these esoteric conversations about like what kind of art you make then you have a kind of pass into this sector that is in and of itself an element of power is like that ability to navigate the very um opaque like language around the sector as well I think so from your perspective how important are these um collaborative projects and collaborative initiatives and how many of them are genuinely collaborative and how Frequently do we see projects that might be just a PR initiative or just something that's done for visibility purposes by what we might call elite established cultural organizations? 
Well, my eyes were kind of rolling while you were talking <laughs> about, <laughs> and not necessarily about what you were saying, but like in terms of like, you know, when you said how many do you think are kind of genuine? And, it, and it's really difficult because institutions, while they are made up of people, they aren't people. They are very fixed. And often, you know, outsiders and insiders have to change to be able to exist within an institution. I think it is very difficult because, you know, when when you're having these conversations about collaborations or um, partnerships, you can be speaking with an individual who on an individual level, you can kind of see how this could be either mutually beneficial or, you know, there's an exchange there. But in terms of an organisation or institution, so many things have to bend and contort to be able to fit to the agenda of that institution, you know, whether it is the ways of speaking or the ways of thinking, the ways of acting, it is very difficult. So even, you know, through the process, I think that is the thing that is really interesting. Like, you know, the outputs, in my mind, are, are secondary because when the kind of most kind of power struggle happens is actually within that process. So it, I think personally, it's hard to say, like I, you know, if I'm being honest, I think it's very hard to see genuine collaboration and partnership just because there's always a kind of a, a vested interest, an interest there in terms of institutions, whether it is survival, whether it is visibility, you know, whether, you know, whether it's kind of a PR thing or whether it is genuine intention, but through the fact that the way the organisation or institution has been set, how it's been run, what the tone of it is, the role of the people that are making the decisions, it just means that actually it's very difficult for like a a genuine partnership to be like viable. Mm. And I I think it's ultimately that it does come down to relationships within that as well. Like you can have a really good relationship with somebody, but if they don't have the buy-in or the relationship from anybody else in that institution or that system that they're existing in, fundamentally it's going to like stop with them and the impact stops with them and the like ability to change things stops with them. And like whilst we are all here because we have good intentions, we also fundamentally want to change the world and are not happy with society and the system as it is. And I think most people you would ask feel similarly about that. And I think sometimes it can feel like these initiatives or this invitation happens like out of the goodness of your heart. You know, it's like, oh, we should do something good for young people. We should do something good for people of colour. And it's like, no, actually, if you don't invite these people into your organisation, you will run out of ideas. You will continue to repeat what's happened before. You will continue to speak to the same people that you've always spoken to. You will not evolve. Mm. And ultimately, your output becomes joyless. It becomes stale. And I think that, like, that collaboration of ideas and genuinely, like, dismantling structures has to start with people, ultimately, I think the power struggles that reflect in the cultural sector are endemic of the wider world, systemic racism, systemic inequality. Um, But that doesn't mean that you can't do something about it. And there's this like tension between be seen to be innovating, to be seen to be doing something new and radical and actually genuinely just like asking more of what you already have and not actually changing anything. I think it's a real 
encapsulation of that, like the um, resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, where there was all this talk about a new normal. And actually what happened is some of the people who, well, I mean, some of the people we've been having with conversations with, that happened and they go back to risk aversion they go back Mm. to like what they've always done before and it suddenly becomes risky in quotation marks to invite different people in and different ideas and do things differently opportunity that we find ourselves in a situation where things have in some ways become much more stuck in their ways and traditional than they were before when it was such an opportunity to do something really exciting and I think we see that in all areas of society and I think the absorption of power in specific, very small places is what allows that to happen. That's brilliant. And I was going to piggyback on that to ask you, from your perspective, where do all these power imbalances come from? How come we have these small pockets of the sector that hold so much power and make so many decisions that have an impact on so many people and so many other organisations, whether it's organizations like Rising that are very much um, community focused or organizations that are um, doing things that are related to communities and well-being. Um, Where do these power imbalances come from? Well, one thing that um, has really stuck with me is a conversation that I had with with a friend and we were talking specifically about board culture and um, we were talking about this idea of like you know, especially for a lot of mission-driven organisations. And I would argue that a lot of cultural and creative organisations have a strong kind of mission-driven vein under them. But the role of the, the, the board or the trustees isn't to help them fulfil that mission, because if it was, they would be trying to kind of continue to extinction you know they would try to make themselves obsolete that would be their their kind of driving force but as a board your role is to preserve and sustain so it's really interesting like if your mission is to kind of you know end child poverty or blah 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 you're instantly at a a conflict because on one hand you've got this mission that is meaning that you need to kind of eradicate these social injustices but on the other hand you need to make sure that your organization stays alive and that's your job legally as a as a board member so it's kind of like which thing takes precedent and at every time it is sustaining the organization you know you've got you know you've got employees you've got whatever you know so I think that for me is where there is always that tension of like you're never going to go as far as you can go you're only going to do the bit that makes that you can say, look, we've done this thing, we're, you know, we're trying, but you're never going to go the, the full way because actually um, this idea of preservation being one of the sole functions of power, you know, maintaining the status quo, mm. I think that le- lends itself really well to, you know, why, why we have these kind of pockets of power and, and stagnation. Yeah, and there's also that, like, scarcity mindset of, like, there's only so many grants, there's only so much spending power from the public to go and see cultural activity, there's only so many jobs in the sector where people feel so, like, scared. They're scared to invite people in that have better ideas than them, that look different from them, 
because they might lose this like gig <laughs> that they've had. Um, I can't remember where that thinking has come from, but this idea of like an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. I think a lot of what happens, like what you're talking about, Uella, is like rather than going, wait a minute, there are 10 charities or organisations and we're all trying to do the same thing. Why aren't we working effectively together to offer more? And that might mean that some of us don't exist anymore versus why don't we have 10 of us doing a similar thing like meaning that all of us get a smaller car and we do less and we do less with the same group of people. Have you seen anything, Andriana, from, you know, from your perspective around these power power pockets and why they exist? Well, what I was going to reflect on, um, and it links to this question of what are kind of the sources of these power imbalances. And the reality is that they very often kind of replicate what's happening in society. Nothing about them is actually specific to the cultural sector or Mm. any other sector. They just replicate how our societies have been structured. Um, And going back to that idea of preservation, the people who have power or the institutions that have power are very demotivated to make any changes. And that puts a lot of organizations, particularly social enterprises like Rising, in a very difficult place where on the one hand, you have to play by the structures and the rules of the game to get resources, to get um, organizations to be part of your work, to get visibility. But also at the same time, trying to change the status quo, trying to change those uh, power structures. The ways in which um, arts institutions and creative institutions have had to um, almost be forced to um, to be able, you know, forced to hold the kind of civic um, responsibility, whether it is around creating gathering spaces for people or, you know, outputs that, you know, bring people together and, and whatever, and often or from what I've seen, that hasn't necessarily been what they've wanted to do. They just want to make art. And and therefore, it feels like this is an ungenuine attempt to, to fulfil this, whether it's engagement, learning, participation, agenda, because it's being forced by funding bodies. But there isn't the kind of genuine want. There isn't the kind of genuine, like, understanding or the kind of deeper understanding of what an arts organization institution could be and therefore it feels like an add-on and it feels like something that is very surface level. And I think there's always this tension between marginalized communities, underrepresented communities and the status quo or society or the culture sector, whatever that thing it's fighting against is that tension between do we just go and create our own thing because we know we can do that in a protective accessible loving way careful way like is there a point at which we still need value we still need interaction acknowledgement from the sector or the status quo to make it worthwhile or is creating that in and of itself enough Well, some big topics and head-spinning ideas flying around there. We've pointed out a lot of what we feel is broken in the sector in the hope that it gives you a good idea of the ways that power imbalances embed themselves and just how big a task it is to root these out. 
The next part of the conversation explores the actions that Rising Arts Agency are currently taking in order to create a fairer distribution of power in the work they do. So as co-directors of a social enterprise, how do you balance this um, kind of challenge between um, maintaining the status quo and learning how to play by the rules of the game so you can get access to resources, particularly challenging the status quo and challenging those social norms and structures to create a better world? I think um, we find it easier to do on behalf of other people. <laughs> like part of the reason we exist is to support young people to navigate these systems, this status quo, these institutions, this hierarchies, this bullshit. And so we are often that bridge. So there's something about being the kind of umbrella between all of that and allowing a young person who would not be able to navigate that system just to create, to do the thing that they're great at, to um, tell a building why it's inaccessible, to uh, talk to an organisation about why their mates don't go there. You know, like, all of those kind of things, like, we exist to do that. And I think there is there is an element of activism in going okay, I'm getting paid and therefore I am here to absorb some of that for you. And I think a lot of cultural institutions could do that with the resources they have. But we found that it's easier for them to outsource it to us. <laughs> and so often we exist in that space. And I think that is a really necessary space to exist in. But there is definitely... There's a big sentiment within our community of young creatives about setting up their own thing. It's like, well, if you're not going to empower me to do what I want to do or give me the space and resources I need to do it, I'm going to go over here and create with my mates over there. And I think like we kind of oscillate between being that umbrella for our community and in some ways in service of the sector to be in service of our young people. And actually, we just need to make something for ourselves. And often that's our Whose Future campaign, where we just go like, this is what we're thinking about, this is what we care about. Um, but ensuring that there's enough of a balance between those two things, because otherwise it can be um, exhausting, mm. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> to always be the umbrella. Yeah. Running with this metaphor, you Ella, save me. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that have really kind of like um, helped us is a kind of like curiosity around everything. Like one of the interesting things about being able to work at and with Rising is the fact that we're kind of simultaneously witnessing Rising as a social enterprise, you know, not for profits, growth and changing while also witnessing that for our communities growth and changing and the sector's growth and changing and kind of being able to just be yeah privy to all this kind of um the sh these shifting parts so I think we've been really like quite vocal about interrogating our definitions one of failure you know what does it actually mean to fail is there such thing as failure like not in the kind of like new modern way of like you know fail fast and all that but actually 
you know, walking away from a, a commission or, or walking away from an opportunity is that failure. You know, us not um, making as much money as we would, you know, we did the previous year. Is that a failure if it meant that actually the work that we did was deeper? You know, what do we mean by growth? You know, are we kind of sticking to a capitalist idea of growth at growth's sake? Or are we thinking about growth being deep and mindful and sustainable? The growth that we could have had we've actually transferred to some members of our community and they've grown their own thing. And so like a kind of network of trees or fungi or something, like our kind of power is is, is spreading horizontally. So I think, you know, we've, we've been really kind of like um, interested in this idea of what culture is and like whose culture are we talking about when we talk about culture? So I think because we've been able to have these kind of really like public questionings about what we mean by these different things how we're learning how we're changing um I think we're privileged in the way that we have you know we've been able to be authentically questioning these things exploring these things interrogating these things and people kind of now know what's up when when we're involved like they kind of know that that kind of comes with the territory but I think for Jess and I as co-directors of this enterprise that is growing, that is changing, we've had to keep checking in with our values about actually what is important to us, what's important to our community. Mm. So I think just even having that as a, as a kind of regular practice is part of that activism work that Jess was talking about. And something that I want to reflect on, um, because you mentioned growth, and from my perspective at least, such a huge part of what we mean by power today and how we think of power is related to capitalist perspective of what success means and assuming that growth, just for growth's sake, is um, a success. And from my perspective, growth is very much the means to the ends. And it's how can we use growth, whether it's growth of resources, growth of audiences, growth of collaborators as something that really is beneficial for the goals that we're trying to achieve. Uh, but I guess that puts you in a very, or, or maybe I'm uh, projecting my perspective on this, but it puts you in a position where you have to do all of the emotional labor for the sector, or at least part of the sector. You have to do a lot of the reflective work for the sector. How do you feel with that burden, with that pressure for you as individuals, but also for rising as an organization? Good question. I think we're still trying to figure it out because with that growth in inverted commas, like we are, like the spaces that we occupy are changing. The the partners that we have are changing. Their intentions are changing. So yeah, we're constantly having to to reevaluate. And sometimes with some people, you know, the emotional burden it doesn't equate or balance itself out for the outcome or the process or the learning that they might get. And I think we, you know, we, we've been trying to think of like, you know, different ways in which we can kind of, one, make that visible, because I think that's been something that a lot of our partners and, um, the, you know, the wider sector don't realise that we do a lot of this emotional labour that's unpaid. You know, how can we you know, make it more visible, have some sort of mutual exchange that kind of counteracts it. Like, is it is it worth is it worth our time is, is a question that we're always having to work out. But like, as Jess said, you know, if we are the ones that are being paid 
part of our duty to our community is to take some of that, but then recognising that we are also our community and we're also young people. So I think we talk a lot about care in Rising's work and part of that is learning who plays the care role Mm. all the time, (laughs) Mm. you know? Like sometimes there are certain people, certain archetypes of people who traditionally, historically play that role of the carer, of the holding of the emotional labour. So that's something that we're also trying to think about and work out. I was like, you know, yes, we're happy to do it. And, you know, if if we're paid for it and if it means that our community don't have to do that, that's fine. You know, let's use our privilege as as people who are paid within Rising to do that for our community. But also, wait a minute, our our team is full of, you know, of young people who are, you know, at the moment, we're currently all women or non-binary people. So yeah, it it, it is something that we, that we're kind of, um, yeah, exploring and very aware of. But over to Jess, who can probably (laughs) say something else. Yeah, no, I think I think that's part of it is naming it sometimes, I think goes a lot of the way, like we debrief in, within every partnership that we have. So if we have been that umbrella throughout just to get a project over the line, at the end we turn around and go, actually this is the emotional work that actually happened behind the scenes to get this over the line. Did you recognise that? If you didn't, what deeper can we work to make sure that that doesn't happen again with us or other partners that you work with? And we kind of factor that into partnerships that we start with people is that element of um, reflection and kind of vulnerability. Like rising is a very vulnerable place. Like we genuinely live and believe that um, you bring your full self to work. And I think Um, some people are very responsive to that some people find it super difficult particularly underrepresented young people who are working in the cultural sector where they've had to be very boundaried about who they are and their identity to exist in that system it can be quite jarring to then interact with rising who's going we want all of you no matter who you are today what your pronouns are whether you've got your wig on like whoever you are today just come and we'll like hang out you know um I think some people can find that quite uh challenging and I count myself within that sometimes sometimes I need to leave some stuff outside of work and it's difficult to in an organization that asks that of you And I think in terms of both personally and within Rising, something that we did that really um, supported that kind of emotional work is we uh, closed in August to external work. And kind of rest and reflection is something that's been really important in our practice for a few years now. And it felt like a really definitive (laughs) statement in mine and Uella's first year of co-directorship to go yeah we are on this growth trajectory like we have increased our profits but you know what like that means we need to rest even more this is not like put your foot on the gas (laughs) pedal time this is kind of pull over go and lie in a field time (laughs) like (laughs) um the metaphors again there's been a lot of change within the team and to really like have that time together um thinking about our work away from the doing of our work has allowed us to 
stick that flag in the ground of like, actually, we don't work on Fridays, so you're not going to get an email from me um, unless I'm working on Friday. Or, you know, like I use four hours of my week for reflection, so I am not going to check my emails in that time. I think just to bring it back to that whole growth thing, I think people are scared, like if they get off the treadmill, that it's going to dry up and you're not going to be relevant again. And I think like that, that idea of like resting, not solely in view of productivity, but it does support it, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, fortunately, um, when you spend time thinking about stuff, it makes the stuff that you're doing better. So something that I wanted to pick up on is you mentioned words that very often we think is almost the opposite of power. You mentioned reflection, you mentioned vulnerability, you mentioned care, and we very rarely associate those words with power. Usually we tend to think that, um, well, care doesn't exist in a capitalist world to begin with, but being vulnerable is something that is almost the opposite of growth and having power and having resources, but also making the time for reflection, for care work, for um, rest is counter to this whole process of, or mindset of scarcity, of not having enough resources, of continuously having to do things. So can you tell us a little bit more how at Rising you've put in place processes or ways of working that really make the structures possible? Um, for people to have care, for people to have rest, to have recovery, not just because it's good for productivity and creativity, but also because it's a way to treat people better, but also to support the environment. For example, having four-day weeks is a really, really good way to reduce our carbon emissions. So from that perspective, it's really, it goes beyond power and it's about challenging a lot of different crises and finding solutions to the crisis that we're experiencing at the moment. What are the things you've done to make care and reflection and vulnerability part of your work? I guess one of the first things is the fact that we have co-directors. Um, you know, Jess and I being um, young co-directors, young female co-directors, you know, was a kind of real kind of visible way of challenging our preconceptions of what power is. Power is usually seen as quite a masculine, um, solitary, strength-based uh, <laughs> pursuit, um, very competitive. Um, so to be able to, you know, to be co-directors where it's about sharing, it's about communication, it's, uh, it's about delegation, it's about, you know, ensuring that one can rest while the other's working or, you know, like it instantly makes you think differently about um, about power, about leadership in general. So that's been one thing we have introduced after our resourcing racial justice work. We introduced uh, rest fees, which are kind of with these things called, we call reparative rest fees, which is a sum of money that we give to people who are working with, who may be doing things that might touch on their trauma or might... Um, force them to do emotional labor, whether it's like being on a panel talking about their identity or or whatever. So we we offer people reparative rest fees so that people can, you know, obviously there's no kind of monetary value you can put to people's rest or to the trauma or the emotional labor that they do in their work as a marginalized creative. But we can say, hey, we see it. Please, you know, use this in a way that feels, you know, 
wholesome and nourishing to you. As just mentioned, we have time in our in our weeks where it's dedicated solely for rest and that is encouraged throughout the team you know it's something that you know especially after August our our month of rest people are feeling really excited about having you know for you know half a day of being able to rest a week to, um, and reflect to think about you know not just your work but actually your life you know and understanding and recognizing that we are whole human beings who come into this work and actually if we weren't this work wouldn't be as good <laughs> you know so kind of you know acknowledging and kind of it's a kind of gift to the to the whole self and you know and we're not prescriptive on how people use that at all you know we've got timesheets which Jess is very really great at in terms of like please don't overwork you know we know that there's kind of capitalist drive and incentive for people to kind of give their whole selves to their jobs it's like no we really don't want that we want you to kind of do what you're what you're said to do that you know that you know that you're contracted or whatever to do but also to recognize if you are overworking you can take that time off in lieu and also make sure that people take holiday which Jess is really good at kind of encouraging oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> she's holiday queen <laughs> she she tries every way you know like encouraging passive aggressive aggressive <laughs> like take your holiday um but you, you need that you need people who are advocating for for the other parts of you um for your rest so so yeah and, and there are other ways and I don't know Jess if you want to say any other ways because I've just gone off on on one no, I think that was great I think uh in terms of the vulnerability piece you go back to work quite quickly after major life events happen it's hard not to be a mess <laughs> and bring that to work with you unfortunately and I think 2020 was a big, I know this is like a cliche, but it was a big um, boundary. Boundary buster. Boundary buster, right? <laughs> <laughs> Where, you know, you were in someone's house now and maybe you'd never been to your colleague's house before and now you knew they had a cat and a partner and all of that stuff. And I think... Um, that has been a big opener in terms of vulnerability. And I think we're lucky that we work for an organisation where that is an advantage, not a disadvantage. Like Uel is saying, I think there are a lot of institutions and organisations where, yeah, just having other stuff going on, <laughs> um, you can be penalised for. So I think we're, we're not naive about how lucky we are, but we hope that just existing and working in this manner does show people that it's possible and you can do this and still be successful and still grow. Um, so another thing that we do is a member of our community, Ant Lightfoot, is an incredible artist, activist, human being. They are one of the first people that sent us an access rider when they joined our community of like what their needs are. And as part of our August of Rest, we actually made them as a team. And now some of us have linked them in our signatures. So every single partner who emails us gets their like, this is who I am as a human being. This is what I need as a human being to function, but also to work well. You know, it's kind of those two things are the same. Like, treat me as a human being and you'll get the best out of me, I think is like the, the bare minimum. And that idea that 
everybody has access needs um and if we norm you know it's similar to pronouns like if they're normalized and everybody has pronouns everybody also has access needs and we can make all spaces as accessible as possible for everybody As you've heard through our time at Rising and our kind of connections with our community and who we call the kind of co-conspirators or allies in this work, you know, there are a load of power imbalances that we find come up in this kind of work, particularly when you're working in partnerships with more established institutions, whether it is kind of this idea of the, the tensions of mission drift, feeling like trying to balance what are our values, what are what are our kind of key outcomes that we want out of this and balancing that out with the partners, whether it's the kind of unpaid, <laughs> invisible emotional labour that we do to make sure that these um, partnerships are viable, not just for us, but for, for our community. You know, whether it is kind of thinking about the kind of facilitation work and the kind of many different hats you have to wear in this kind of care work framework of being vulnerable, of being able to bring your whole self into these spaces. And actually, there are a lot of instances where in order to get to that place, you have to do a whole load of legwork and facilitation and, and making people feel safe. And, and what does that actually mean for a young team who are also part of marginalised and underrepresented groups in, in the sector too? So it, there is a lot of these kind of questions that are keep coming up for us. And um, this was kind of why we wanted to apply to the, um, the Collaborate Fund as part of the Centre for Cultural Value and work with Andriana, who is a lecturer at KCL, to to really kind of think about how can we explore this deeper? How can we not just think about the impact of these power imbalances in, in these partnerships, in kind of doing wider inclusion work, but how can we eradicate them? And that's what we're really excited about. Yeah. And I think it's also like, whilst we do a lot of this work and Rising is definitely a, a meeting point for so many of the topics that we've spoken about, there are other grassroots organisations in Bristol, across the country, across yeah. the world, doing similar roles for institutions and larger organisations. And we're really interested to explore like how we fit within that ecosystem. We have a lot of allies in that space already and we're really excited to meet more of them. But also, I think for those institutions and those um, larger organisations to think about like how are they having that conversation about power and how are they treating the people that they work with? And are they naming that? Are they ticking a box on a funder's uh, form? Are they actually genuinely like bought into this um, work? And it's going to be really exciting to potentially have some of those conversations within this um, project. Um, what I'm really excited about is this idea of knowledge as power and looking at power from a very different perspective, not just as um, material power and tangible power in terms of resources, but also knowledge as a very specific form of power and a very specific type of resource. Mm. And from my perspective, being able to do this research project with you is about, again, changing the power imbalances that exist by leveraging a resource that we usually don't have a chance to play with because it also exists within specific power structures that make research 
very often inaccessible, invisible, written in thousands and thousands of words behind paywalls that no individual or most organizations in the cultural industry can't afford to pay. And from my perspective, that's really interesting because it helps us to kind of take what we're learning from this project and applying it to my own practice, even though it's not necessarily in the cultural sector, but something that really has the potential to make um, a lot of the work visible in a way that's accessible and the way that allows your allies, co-conspirators, partners to learn from your work, but also for you to learn from other organizations that might be doing similar work and really leveraging that source of power in a way that helps us to change traditional power structures. So far, this conversation has been to a degree exploitative, as in um, I've learned so much from you. And um, a lot of this has been about us. And maybe this is an opportunity for us to open this up to other individuals or organizations in the cultural sector and extend an invitation for them to reflect, to make the space for care work in their own practice through Mm -hmm. reflecting on how power manifests in their work and what collectively we can imagine a truly equitable sector can look like. But also building on Jess's point about abundance and how we share and work together to extend the pie instead of compete with each other. To invite people or organizations who have resources, who have ideas, who have already done some of this work, to get in touch with us so we can all collectively reflect and learn from each other. Thank you for sticking with us. We really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Reflection is a big part of our practice, and so we encourage you to explore the ways that power manifests in your work. Here are some prompts to get you started thinking about this. What could a truly equitable sector look like? And what power or resources do you have that you can share to create abundance? We would love to hear your responses, and so please contact us by emailing hello at rising.org.uk. This episode was edited by myself, Joe Hill, and co-produced along with Jess, Uella, and Andriana. We want to thank the Collaborate Fund for making this work possible and also give a big shout out to everyone who's doing this kind of work already as you're an inspiration for us all. So take care of yourselves and see you in the next episode.